0: What is your Bible? It is a message of God to man. It is His communication to us as His people. When we come to the New Testament, we are presented with four books that reveal to us the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We then approach the book of Acts. What a marvelous book that is that reveals to us the acts of the apostles, the beginning of the church, the foundation for you and I to know how to become New Testament Christians. From the book of Romans through the book of Jude, we have letters, letters written to churches, written to individuals. These letters have a purpose in mind. Sometimes those letters are focused on trying to tell God's people, these are things you need to fix in your life. These are things you need to do to worship God acceptably and appropriately. And some of those letters focus on some very important doctrinal teachings. For the next few weeks... I want to concentrate on the book of Colossians. It is a precious book. It's a great book. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the brethren who who lived in Colossae. You see, it's a part of four books or four letters, if you will, written while Paul was in prison in Rome. When you read Luke's account in the book of Acts, you remember that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, transferred to Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar and was given the privilege to be able to appear before him and Luke records the journey that Paul makes from Caesarea to Rome. But then what? Then you have Paul in Rome, concerned for the the congregations and the individuals with whom he had worked. Ephesus, which was the place where he spent his longest term preaching, three and a half years. The background of that great church is revealed not only in Acts 19, but in the book of Ephesians that he wrote from prison. Philippi. That was the congregation that Paul enjoyed a special relationship. You see, they had been Paul's sponsor as he carried the gospel to all the world. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and following. Then you have the letter to the Colossians. Rather unique. He never met these brethren face to face. He knew about them. He knew people associated with the congregation. He knew Philemon. He knew Onesimus. He knew Epaphras. You see, Paul loved the brotherhood. It wasn't just those people with whom he had a a direct contact. He loved all the brethren everywhere. As Peter would write in 1 Peter 2 verse 17, Honor all people love the brotherhood. Now for just a moment, just contemplate what that really means. That means that I have to love the brethren here at Bobby Branch. You are part of the brotherhood. But you see, when you go and visit another congregation of God's people, whether here locally or even at a great distance, these are our brethren. And we must and should love them as well. Now I want you to notice one verse out of the book of Colossians, which in my judgment is the key verse of this whole wonderful letter. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Brethren, this is the church of Christ. Christ is in this church. We often talk about our being in Christ, but He is in us. When you read the book of John, chapters 14 through 17... There's a wonderful picture given there as Jesus speaks with those apostles and he talks about the Father being in him and he in the Father and he says, and I in you. Jesus is in us, his church, his followers. And I hope that when we finish this series of lessons, you will say, I get it now. What does it mean for Christ to be in us and for us to be his people? As we introduce this series of lessons, we're going to look at four things this morning. We're going to look at the city of Colossae, a very uh, important city among many of the others. We're going to look at the church and uh, the little bit of the background behind it. We're going to look at the circumstances that caused Paul to write this letter, some of the themes that are found in it. And then finally, the commencement of the letter, what we might call the first few verses where Paul introduces himself and the letter. When you think about city, the location is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. You see, Ephesus is one of the port cities on the western shore of what today is the country of Turkey. It's about 100 miles inland and about the same latitude. Uh, it's a part of the beautiful Lycus River Valley. There's a river that runs through it. It's beautiful, it's green, it's lush. There are three cities that are found there together, the city of Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. In fact, you can read in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, for I bear witness that he has a great zeal for you, those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. There are three little cities, or not little, cities that are found close together. What's interesting is they each have their own unique feature to them. Hierapolis is a lot like Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a city where people go to enjoy pleasure. It's a place where they go to enjoy the health of the Hot Springs, it's a place where people would enjoy themselves. Beautiful city. Not far from there, the city of Laodicea. Totally different. It's a city with huge buildings, and the emphasis is upon wealth and the acquiring of wealth. And then you have Colossae. By the time Paul writes the letter there, they're a small and declining city. Oh, they've once been great. If I could compare it to maybe a city in the United States, I'd look at Detroit, a city that was once very thriving, but now is fallen and fallen in disrepair and is shrinking. Historically, these people were Phrygian, and you can say, well, I don't understand what's the importance of Phrygia. That's a a location like Middle Tennessee. It's very close to Pisidia, where Paul went and preached at Antioch very close to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby, uh, found there in the central part of Turkey. Historians will tell us about 400 B.C. This was a huge city. Had a lot of people there. With the expansion of Rome, it became a melting pot, and you brought people from all sorts of nations round about them. But eventually, the people began to leave Colossae and settle further, to Laodicea and Heropolis because of what they offered. Cicero, the Roman statesman, said that there were over 10,000 Jews that settled in this area. That might give us some kind of idea why Paul would write some of what he writes to the Colossians. It also gives us an insight as to why this would be a great fertile area for the preaching of the gospel. And yet, they had their Greek and Roman gods that they worshipped. They worshipped Artemis or Diana, that the Ephesians did. They worshipped Zeus. They worshipped a number of Egyptian deities. Give you a little idea: Colossae. If you look in the map, it's right in the middle. If you look at the location of these three cities, uh, the furthest apart is 11 miles. If you're at Sea and you're looking at Hierapolis, you can just see it. It's only about eight miles away. The city is up on a mound. You can see it there in the lower part of your screen. I took this photo a few years ago to try to show how beautiful the, the area was with all the green stuff growing. And yet you see in the distance the mountains that still have the snow caps on them that brings the cold water down to Colossae. There's a mound there where the city was located, the Acropolis, if you will, the high part of the city. You can see there's not much on it today because it's not been excavated. In fact, you can walk around and there's a huge theater that all of us would just fit in one little small part of it. Grass is growing up in it, but you can still see the the outline of where it was located. There's columns laying on the ground where there used to be great buildings, See, it's a city that was once great. There is a stream that runs right next to it. It's where that cold snow melting comes down and provides cold water for the city of Colossae. Now, for just a few minutes, let's think about the church there. When and how did the church get started? If Paul didn't start the church, well, it's possible some of the brethren could have learned of that in Acts chapter Two, I mentioned to you earlier they were Phrygians, but in Acts two verse ten he starts talking about people hearing in their own language, and he says there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and cappadocia pontius asia Phrygia oh yeah there were some people from this area in Jerusalem when the church got started. Many of these people would have gone back and carried the gospel back to their own area and said, hey, we've learned about Jesus the Christ and about His kingdom, the church. Paul, as he moved through on his missionary journeys, would have passed through because Luke records, he says, having passed through Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening the disciples. Acts 19 verse 1 says, Says that he passed through the upper regions as he came to Ephesus. But Paul had not seen the church at Ephesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 I want you to know what a great conflict I have for those, you and those in Laodicea, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Here's a church that Paul loved, he's writing a letter to that he never actually seen. Epaphras established the church. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he said, You also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. He tells you in chapter 4, verse 12, he's one of you. So was Epaphras in that number in Acts 2? Possibly Was he one of those whom Paul came in contact with as he carried the gospel throughout that Phrygian area? I don't know. I just know he's the man who was one of them and taught them the truth. They also shared many of the common issues with Laodicea. That would tell you a little bit about their background. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Now when this epistle is read among you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So they shared a common background. Now that leads me very quickly into what I wanted to start concentrating on is, why did Paul write this letter? It's not as if Paul is sitting here in that prison in Rome and thinking, you know, Who all can I write a letter to? It's not as if he's just going down his list of his friends and say, You know, I could write a letter to this one and to that one. When you read these letters, you realize that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write these letters. To address needs, to address problems they had. Sometimes the problems the churches were facing were moral issues, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sometimes they were facing misunderstandings about some very basic issues like the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 and following. There are problems that are in the church at Colossae. How do you deal with those problems? I'm thankful that God chose through his infinite wisdom, to write these kind of letters so that churches like Body Branch could be able to read them now 2,000 years later and say, there's something there that we need and that we can learn from. Well, how did Paul learn about the problems? Onesimus. Now, I could spend a lot of time and would love to talk about Onesimus and Philemon, You remember Onesimus, the runaway slave? He's with Paul and he is given the condition, chapter 4, verse 9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all the things that are happening here. When Onesimus arrives at Colossae, they're going to tell what's happening with Paul. He's very likely said, here's some of the things that are happening at the church. Epaphras is with Paul as well, chapter 4, verse 12, and he's evidently related some of the things. He said, Epaphras, who's one of you, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may, now listen carefully, stand perfect and complete in the will of God. Here's the man who has worked in establishing this church. How does he feel? He wants the brethren there to be complete, to be mature. Oh, that we would be mature before the Lord. Let's be specific. I've already mentioned the fact that Cicero recorded there was 10,000 Jews in the area. Part of the problem is relating to their Jewish background. Many of those peoples who were converted out of Judaism had a problem giving it up, leaving it behind. So what do you mean by that? Well, listen to chapter 2, verses 11 and 16. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. You see, their, their uniqueness, their mark in the flesh, if you will, was being circumcised. And Paul is drawing attention to the fact that your circumcision is that in Christ, not this physical one. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. I can visualize, here's a congregation there at Colossae. And some people are looking at others and saying, why aren't you observing the Feast of Tabernacles? I don't believe I saw your little tent built outside. Why are you not refraining from working on the Sabbath day? You see, for them, they were binding all of these things on the Gentile Christians. They were saying, we never observed the Feast of Tabernacles. We never participated in the Sabbaths. Some of them were binding them. Let me tell you something else going on at Colossae. There's a mystic element. There's some people who are practicing and believing in some rather odd things, different things. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility. And worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Now you imagine here in the church at Bible Branch, let's say we got some people who say, you know what, I think we ought to be worshiping Michael the archangel, Gabriel. I think we ought to be worshiping and putting these angelic hosts up and worshiping them. No, 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 we don't do things like that. There were folks in the church at Colossae that was struggling with people like that. There's another ascetic element, and the word ascetic means simply to deny physical pleasures. In other words, if you like chocolate, oh, don't you eat any chocolate. Because that brings pleasure. You don't need to, to have a lot of fun in life, you need to be very somber. And you see, the reason why they would say that is, is because the more you deny yourself, the more spiritual you are. Chapter two, verses twenty and following. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle which all concerning things which perish with the using. Now listen carefully. According to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. These people who are trying to say, you don't eat this, you don't do this, you don't touch this, because you do, you'll enjoy yourself and you won't be very spiritual. But perhaps the greatest challenge that's at this church is their view of Christ. Who was Jesus? You see, we've assembled here this morning... And we're giving praise and honor to the God of heaven and to Jesus Christ the Son. We are known as Christians. We are a part of the church of Christ, His church. It belongs to Him. How do I view Him? Well, let me tell you what started to be believed among people during this time is that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That He was only some sort of apparition, maybe a ghost, if you will. That people just thought they saw Him, but that He was not really there physically. Some of them just thought that couldn't be. You see, as we began our lesson this morning, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him, that's in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Deity, Godhood, if you will, lives in Him bodily. That is, in His physical body. When you saw Jesus in the first century, He not only was every bit human, but He was also every bit God. Something very difficult for them to wrap their minds around. Difficult sometimes for us. You see, part of this letter is to try to teach, as I mentioned in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, as we approach this book, we recognize that it's going to be important to see the precepts and the practice. Chapters 1 and 2 are going to be very doctrinal. They're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to talk about His church. They're going to talk about how you and I are a part of Him. And then when we get to chapters 3 and 4, we're going to talk about some practical things that derive from that. Now, if you want to open your Bibles to chapter 1, we're going to look at those first few verses, and then we're going to extend the Lord's invitation. Paul's going to begin with his authorship and authority. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about Paul being an apostle. That's his authority. That's the fact that he has the right to speak to these people and tell them what to do because he's representing the Lord on earth. He is doing as Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The recipients here are stated to be saints, faithful brethren. You see, our world today is confused because we've heard this idea that someone says, Well, I'm no saint. Well, you're not. By that they mean I don't live a good, wholesome, good life. Well, that's not what the term saint means. Someone says, well, I thought you couldn't be a saint till after you had died and they voted you to be the special person. No, you've been listening too much to the Catholic Church. Saints are Christians. Sometimes Christians aren't faithful. When Paul writes to these, he says, faithful brethren, people who are loyal to God and striving to do what is right, What is the condition of the congregation to whom he is writing? He uses some very colorful descriptions in verses 4 and 5. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. There's three special words in there. I hope you caught them. Faith in Christ. Love for all the saints. Hope laid up for heaven. Someone says, oh, I I think I've read those words somewhere else. You see Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. He talks about having access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 4, he says, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And now the hope does not disappoint because of the love of God. So you've got faith, love, and hope. Or, I'm sure most of you probably already was a step ahead of me. First Corinthians thirteen, thirteen. now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, those three terms go together. We want to be churches of faith. We want to be churches of hope. We want to be churches of love. Now verses 5 and 6 looks at the effect of the gospel upon them. He said, in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has into all the world and bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Look at some of those phrases he uses there. He first of all talks about the word of the truth of the gospel. That's the message. That's the way God intended to save man. Remember Romans 1 and verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When someone preaches to you and teaches you from the Bible the love of God, your faith in Christ Jesus, your hope for heaven, they're preaching the gospel to you. He said this same message that has come to you. That's gone into all the world. It does not matter if you're in McMinnville, Tennessee, or you're in India, or you're in South America, or you're in Europe. It's that same gospel message. Paul would say in First Corinthians four, verse seventeen, he says, "I will." He will remind you of my ways as I teach everywhere in every church. Same message. Saves Jew, same message saves Gentile, and it brought forth the same fruit. You know, this morning some of us laughed about it's time to plant our tomato plants. It's really not, but you know, we were laughing about that. But you know what? If you plant tomato seeds in McMinnville, Tennessee, you're going to get tomatoes. You can take that same tomato seed and you can plant it in Europe and you're still going to get a tomato. You can take that same tomato seed and you can go to South America and you're still going to get a tomato. If you take the pure Word of God and you preach it here in McMinnville, you're going to make a New Testament Christian. You preach that same gospel to another country, to another culture, it still makes a New Testament Christian. And then sort of bringing this all together, Epaphras, this special person, I'd like to meet this fellow. Paul said, you learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul describes him as a dear fellow servant. Dear means he's close to you. I love him. I appreciate him. I appreciate him for what he has done, what he continues to do. And then he says, he's a faithful minister on your behalf. Don't lose that last part. On your behalf, The church at Colossae was evangelistic. They had a preacher going and preaching God's message elsewhere. You and I need to realize it is our obligation as the people of God to see that the gospel goes into all the world Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's what Colossae was doing. There's so much to learn from these congregations and their struggles. You and I need to realize that we're not perfect. We're not mature enough as we should be. We've got a long way to grow. We've got things to learn. And when we study books like Colossians, those books provide for us that guidance. But let me also remind you that at the center of everything is a focus upon who Jesus really is. He is the Son of God. And in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Chapter 1 verse 27. This hope of glory which is Christ in you. Christ in you. And say, so, well, maybe I need to be thinking. What does it mean for Christ to be in me? And me to be in Christ. If you're not yet a Christian. Christ is not in you. Nor are you in Christ. You can get into Christ. And Christ then in you. By being obedient to the gospel. Galatians 3 verse 26. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This morning, if you have not yet become a New Testament Christian, when we sing this invitation song, we want to encourage you, come down to the front. We'll assist you in becoming a New Testament Christian by being baptized. If you are a prodigal, that is, you are a child of God wandering in the world, not walking faithfully, God bids you come home. We're going to sing the song, God is calling the prodigal. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing.